Dan Rundy. I hold the Schreier Chair here at CSIS, and uh, I'm a Senior Vice President here. And I'm really, really pleased to have my friend Doug Johnston here, who was an editor of, I think, one of the most important books that's been written in foreign policy circles in the last 30 years. There's probably a handful of books that you'd say have, have had staying power in foreign policy. And one of them, I, it's certainly The Ugly American, which came out in 1958, still has, it, I, I mean, that, that book is sort of, sort of, the, is sort of the, goal, the high watermark of books that have had a major impact on foreign policy. President, Senator Kennedy bought 100 copies and handed out a copy to every member of the Senate, took out an ad himself in the New York Times to say how important this was, reused the book to reorganize our foreign assistance, the Peace Corps, and the Green Berets, all out of that one book. So I know that's a, that's a tough act to follow, but I would say, <laughs> I would say, but, but I would say religion, the missing dimension of statecraft, um, which is in its, is the 25th anniversary of this book, is in, is in that zip code of, of one of those books that has a long staying power. Um, Doug Johnston was an executive vice president here at, at CSIS, so welcome home, Doug. I'm really pleased you're here. I'm really pleased to be doing this with you. And I think it, it, um, I think it stood the test of time. Doug has, written, has, a, has set up an NGO in 1999 uh, to work on the issues of, of religion and conflict and foreign policy. Now, I think, frankly, Doug, you're probably ahead of the curve given some of the things that happened after 1999 that I think we'll probably talk about. Um, and I also think that the, the importance of this, I think, remains, but I worry that the Washington community is even further away from, and I want to talk about this sort of a, I'm going to use this term that perhaps we're entering in the West, a post-Christian world. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. So there's lots of stuff to talk about, but you all didn't come here to hear from me. You all here, came here to hear from my, my friend, Doug Johnston. So, so I've got several, I've made a career here asking softball questions of people who come, come to, to be with me. So I'm going to ask, I've got a series of questions I wanted to ask Doug when I, when I asked for this. I, and the reason, what prompted me to do this, I was reading his second book, and I want everyone to go out and buy his books retail, okay? So I don't want anyone to go bar, borrowing, go out and buy this book. You gotta buy this book. This should be in your library. And then I read his follow-up book, which is called uh, Religion, Terror, and Error, which I also recommend as well. Um, and I'm sure he'll talk about that as well. So, okay, so Doug, why did you write this book 25 years ago? And thanks for being here. Sure. Well, thank you, Dan, for having me. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege to come back to CSIS in this capacity. Uh, and thank you all for coming. Uh, understand there's a lot of competition for your time elsewhere, so it's really appreciated. Um, the reason I wrote the book was uh, twofold. One was uh, because I was uh, mindful that uh, we as a nation were pretty inept at making peace. We were pretty good at strong defense, but uh, not so good at making peace. And also, it was an anticipation of the relaxation of the bipolar confrontation when the Soviet Union would fold. Uh, that confrontation that had suppressed uh, religious and uh, uh, ethnic antagonisms, uh, the constraints came off. And so they came to the fore, and uh, it seemed like we probably needed something beyond traditional diplomacy to cope with those identity-based conflicts. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the wake of 9-11, uh, this country was uh, stunned and also amazingly ill-equipped to deal with religious extremism. Um, I say amazingly because, after all, we are one of the more religious countries on the face of the planet. 
Yet why this uh, neglect of religion's influence when 84% of the world's population uh, derives their sense of being from their religion? And I think there's probably uh, a number of factors at play, one of which is 200 years of enlightenment prejudice, where religion was seen to have a diminishing impact over time. Uh, secondly, and an extension of the first, was the fact that the realist school of international relations uh, thought of religion as uh, uh, soft, uh, irrational, and therefore irrelevant, and uh, their thinking was pretty much dominated by dogmatic secularism and economic determinism. And finally, uh, when you look at the Cold War, the overriding challenge there was to contain the godless Soviets. So religion was not at the table in any event. Mm. And it was to address this gap that uh, the book that we're celebrating today was developed. And I could speak immodestly about the book because uh, we have a number of world-class scholars and government practitioners who participated in its creation. And to quote Hal Saunders, uh, who was on the steering committee for the book, former Assistant Secretary of State and the architect of the Camp David Accords, he said, uh, in my experience, the collaborative nature of this project is unprecedented. So uh, that's uh, uh, the, the due is paid to all of these good folks. Now, the book's purpose was to explore the uh, positive role that religious or spiritual factors could actually play in preventing and resolving conflict, while at the same time advancing social change based on justice and reconciliation. And it does this through a series of seven case studies that show how religion's influence has worked to good effect in different parts of the world, one of which, just as an example, uh, was the uh, Franco-German reconciliation after World War II and the role played by a largely Christian organization called Moral Rearmament, or MRA. And the leader of MRA was a gentleman by the name of Frank Buckman. And mm. he foresaw that unless something was done to actually achieve some personal reconciliation across these two countries, uh, history was likely to repeat itself yet again. So he and several uh, like-minded Swiss colleagues uh, pooled their resources and purchased an old hotel, a grand hotel on the side of a mountain in Coe, Switzerland, it's, uh, above Montreux on the eastern end of Lake Geneva. And when I say grand, uh, in the early 1900s, kings, queens, maharajas, mm. I mean, it was amazing. They came there. But uh, it was in sad disrepair when they purchased it because it had been used by refugees during the war. And uh, they then, over a three-year period, brought together uh, some 2,000 French with 3,000 Germans, preachers, teachers, labor leaders, what have you, to uh, reconcile on a personal basis. And uh, it was in the context of those meetings that Robert Schumann and Conrad Adenauer met and later jointly gave birth to Jean Monnet's European Coal and Steel mm -hmm. Community Plan, you know? which led to the uh, European uh, community and to the, now to the European Union. And while MRA would make no pretense of having had anything to do with that plan, the research shows clearly that uh, had it not been for that reconciliation achieved across industry groups and labor unions, uh, there was no way it could have gotten off the ground. So it's a, it's a very interesting audit trail. And Edward Litvak, who's uh, mm. one of the brighter scholars in the, in the world, 
perform the research on that, and he was stunned at uh, uh, how significant that truly was. Uh, but uh, when the book came out, it struck a responsive chord. It uh, soon became, uh, quickly became a required reading at the Foreign Service Institute, where we train our foreign service officers. And it also uh, soon found its way into numerous colleges, universities, and seminaries at the graduate and undergraduate level. And many endorsements, over 60 that first year from all the notable publications, uh, one of which was uh, London Financial Times gave it a half a page, Washington Times gave it a full page. Uh, it was just amazing uh, uh, what that receptivity was. And one of the more interesting endorsers uh, were the Japanese, because mm. in uh, 1999, five years after its publication, uh, they uh, cited it as one of the ten most, in Sapio, their equivalent of Time magazine, they cited it as one of the ten most important books to read in preparing for the 21st century. Mm. And at first I was puzzled, you know, why this uh, country with 50 years of crass materialism imposed on uh, Shintoism and Buddhism could get so excited about a book that was largely Christian in its content. And the, uh, uh, after a while, I figured it out. And it had to do with the atomic bomb experience and their almost religious de dedication to trying to resolve conflict other than militarily. And that interest goes on. Less than a month ago, I was in Tokyo speaking to several hundred Japanese leaders about uh, religion and foreign policy, and the focus was this book. So it's just uh, it's amazing. As you say, it does have a, a certain enduring quality to it. But... Um, you have you have a you have an introduction from Jimmy Carter. How did you get? How did that come about? I mean, I think Jimmy Carter is a well-regarded former president of the United States. I think many people know that he still teaches Sunday school once a month in in Plains, Georgia. So he's obviously a very religious man. He's always been a very religious man. So he how did how did that come about? And talk about that. It happened because uh, I was leading uh, from I was at CSIS at the time as uh, executive vice president and COO. And I was asked to lead a, uh, uh, the U.S. delegation to a U.S.-Japan Leadership Council meeting, which uh, uh, lasted uh, a day and a half. This was in Kyoto, Japan, and uh, cost a million and a half dollars. So it was, uh, it, that's the first and only meeting they've ever had. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, the Japanese were providing four prime ministers for this effort, mm. and I needed to match that. So. Uh, I finally got Jimmy Carter, but I had to, uh, there was a bit of larceny involved. Uh, I had to get the Japanese to agree to provide $400,000 for his effort to eliminate guinea worm disease in Africa. And uh, so I got him, and uh, on the last day that we were there, we were sitting uh, cross-legged, uh, uh, having lunch around uh, tables on the floor. and. I went up to him and uh, I said, I told him about the book and that, uh, what it was about, and I said, I th think you could make a tremendous contribution if you'd be so kind as to write the forward. And I said, we'll provide a draft for you. He said, well, uh, I might like to uh, uh, change it some. I said, no problem. I said, it'd be great if you just wrote it from scratch, but we'll provide you a draft. So two years passed and it's time to call in the IOU. and. Uh, uh, I get, I wait a long time and I get a, a note back from their staff and it provides a blurb for the cover of the book, but uh, the president never does this sort of thing. And so I wrote him a, a three-page letter uh, 
explaining to him why he absolutely had to do it. Uh, and sort of left unspoken, but semi-transparent in this is, as, as fellow Naval Academy graduates, we honor our word. And okay. <laughs> so I received the draft back with three word changes, and there we had our Jimmy Carter draft. <laughs> and you know, a lot of other people have, uh, have, have questioned this because he never does do that. You know, it was just, it's uh, very it's very unusual. I mean, it's something to note. That I noted that yeah. when when I with with the book. You know, one, one thing I might just add, too, is that uh, because of this acclaim for the book, uh, we put in place here a preventive diplomacy program at CSIS uh, and uh, called on Joe Monville to come in and to uh, uh, head that up. And Joe's here. Joe, raise your hand and stand up. Stand up so people can see you. Yeah. <laughs> Joe is a retired Foreign Service officer, and uh, okay. yeah, you can sit down. <laughs> <laughs> who who actually coined the term "Track to Diplomacy" in really? an article uh, in Foreign Policy magazine back in the early '80s, but he'd been on the steering committee of the book, and he oversaw this program. And about five years into it, uh, I was chairing it, and uh, Dave Abshire, who was president yeah. at the time, came up to me and said, "You know, uh, I suggest that you keep your people out of the war zones." And uh, he says, we have uh, board, board members who get apprehensive about their fiduciary liabilities in case <laughs> we lose somebody. And that made sense, and uh, we, we did that. But it caused me to think that, you know, I really need to leave this think tank and start a do tank so that board members know from day one that going in harm's way is part of what we do. And so we established in uh, 1999 the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy to, uh, to bridge religion and politics in support of peacemaking, uh, and doing this through a new form of engagement called faith-based diplomacy, which is another way of saying make religion part of the solution. And so uh, over a 20-year period now, uh, the center has uh, been involved in more than a dozen countries' uh, conflict situations, either looming or in process, and uh, two of the more strategic are in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, uh, both of which have to do with educational reform, interestingly enough. But in Pakistan, what we've been doing is uh, uh, trying to get the madrasas, the religious schools, to expand their curriculums to include the physical and social sciences with a strong emphasis on human rights and religious tolerance. Mm and to transform the pedagogy to create critical thinking skills among the students. And at this point in time, uh, we've reached about 8,000 madrasa leaders from 5,000 different madrasas. And that sounds like a lot. It's not because there's over 20,000, uh, but most of these were all in the most radical areas of the country. And um, the, uh, I'll just give you one little anecdote to illustrate how this works. We were conducting a workshop in the uh, uh, Swat Valley, which is a resort area in the mountains of Pakistan, mm -hmm. where the Taliban had taken over and heads were rolling. And uh, the, uh, toward the Liter end- Literally or figuratively? Literally. Liter okay. Yeah. And so uh, toward the end of the workshop, one gentleman stands up. He's a madrasa leader. Turns out he's also a commander in Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is a group- One of the bad guys. Right, they, right. they're the ones that mounted the attacks on Mumbai. Yeah. And uh, the, 
he said, he said in so many words, he says, I came here for one reason and one reason only, it's to discredit everything you have to say. Mm. He says, but I now find myself standing here full of rage. Rage because for 26 years I've been studying and teaching the Holy Quran the way it was taught to me. He says, I now, for the first time in my life, I have sensed the soul of the Holy Quran and its peaceful intent. He says, I, I now see that the right way to advance Islam is through peace, not through conflict. I'm going to change what I tell my students and I'm going to tell them why. Well, uh, I was kind of bowled over that he would be that brave in mixed company in that context, but I suppose he was cut some slack for being a terrorist commander. But uh, uh, anyway, we came back a month later to see uh, uh, what was going on, and sure enough, he was doing exactly as he said, and we had a CNN team with us who was, had for several years been trying to, wanted to document our work, and we brought them along, and he said it on CNN for God and the entire world to hear. So, so you know, this is, a, this is really about addressing the ideas behind the guns, if you will. You know, the, uh, when you, I think the greatest overriding concern of the national security community is uh, this potential marriage of weapons of mass destruction with religious extremism. And in fighting that extremism, uh, bombs and bullets have their place. Uh, but if you really want to in the swamp of terrorism, uh, you need to win hearts and minds. And that's, uh, that's what you do when you address the ideas behind the guns, as we have been doing through faith-based diplomacy. So it's, uh, it's something that the State Department has come to really value, uh, seeing it as every bit as strategic as anything else that's going on on or off the battlefield. Um, in Saudi Arabia, just uh, uh, this, this last weekend, uh, James Patton, who uh, succeeded me as uh, head of ICRD, James, stand up for a second if you would. Uh, uh, he and I just uh, returned from Saudi Arabia, where we're uh, making preparations to develop and implement a uh, teacher training module on globalization where we will train Saudi teachers on globalization and all the subsets that flow from that, things like tolerance and religious literacy and uh, critical thinking, inclusivity, a lot of things, are the right things that they need to hear. So it's a kind of a breakthrough for us and we're pretty excited about this. Doug, why has this book gone through 12 printings? Why is there, why is this, why has this had so much success? I think because of the quality of the scholarship that went into it. The book is very rich in primary sources. Uh, we would put uh, PhD level folks out in the field for several weeks at a time to uh, really pin down something that's eminently elusive, and that is the spiritual dimension of what took place. And uh, we were able to wrestle that to the ground in these, these seven places. When we first started out, we wanted to find examples from all religions, and we tried. Um, and we ended up, by default, with largely Christian examples. Uh, that's not to say there aren't others elsewhere. Uh, we just didn't find them. So, uh, but the, uh, I think people, this was the first systematic account of, the, of that positive role I was talking about. And uh, I think people are finding it a useful reference for other situations with similar context. 
So my, my hero and friend Andrew Natsios bought 60 copies when it came out and had, gave it, it when he was at World Vision, which is a Christian NGO. Right. Um, and he, he's always spoken, at least on several, three or four occasions, he's referenced it in various work, work settings. And it's, it's, it's something, he's seen it as a, a book with staying power. You, uh, you know, once, uh, not to interrupt, but when Brian Atwood was the head of USAID, yeah. Uh, he was testifying on the Hill before Frank Wolf, who controlled the budget for the yes. State Department. And Frank Wolf held up a copy of the book and says, have you read this? And of course, poor Brian had never even heard of it, you know, and he said no. And so Frank slams on the table, you absolutely have to read this, you know. So it's, it's, uh, it's got some enduring truths in it, I think, that are very helpful to people. Let me, let me try something else on you. I, I worry, though, that even as... Look, I, I'm a card carrying. I'm Catholic. I go to church on Sunday. My grandfather would say, I "Hit the rail on Sunday." I'm, I, you know, I try and take it fairly serious. I take it seriously, but I actually would argue that most that the United States is potentially entering, and certainly the West, Europe, for example, is entering sort of a post-Christian. Maybe I'm going to use that term. That it's becoming certainly the elites, and certainly if you're in the precincts of a think tank or if you're a diplomat, I think it's becoming a far more secular elite that we have in the United States and that, I want to describe it, I don't know if people are either afraid of the topic, they're probably more afraid to talk about religion than they are to talk about sex these days, I mean, to be honest. And then also maybe, I'm going to put it this way, I would argue that many elites in our diplomatic and national security community who don't hit the rail on Sundays, if I can put it that way, maybe have a lot of ignorance about these issues. Is, are those fair statements? Those are probably fairer statements uh, uh, back when the book hit the street than is the case now. Uh, one of the things I found was uh, I was invited to uh, England to, uh, uh, for a week uh, when the book came out to uh, share with the BBC and all sorts of or uh, organizations, uh, Chatham House and the like, uh, uh, about uh, what this book was about. And uh, one of them was a, uh, at a luncheon. I had to speak to Oxford Dons from all the colleges at Oxford. These were the, the premier intellectuals. Yeah, you know, the greatest I, intellectuals in the world. Well, and I thought, uh, I thought it might be an unfriendly audience, you know, and I was just amazed at how many of them stood up and gave personal testimony about their own religious faith and really? belief and all, you know. And, of course, in the West, we so compartmentalize it that uh, we don't really talk about it in the workplace. Uh, uh, and and w the gap that we have that we need to fill is when you talk to Muslims in just about all but one country uh, that we've participated in, uh, in this kind of activity and uh, has had an Islamic interface. And of course, Muslims don't separate the two. They, they, they integrate them, and what we've found is we practice faith-based diplomacy. It takes many manifestations, but one of the simplest is I would be having a conversation with the foreign minister of Sudan, uh, a realpolitik kind of discussion yeah. about why we're suggesting uh, what they do is in their own best interest to do, but then looking for that convenient opportunity to make a helpful reference to the Quran or to uh, how the prophet might have dealt with uh, the situation or what Jesus might have mm. to say about it, they open up. Mm. I have never seen it fail. No matter how hard-boiled they are, they open up. And so this is a way, you know, where we can come out of the closet a bit. Yeah. And, you know, and, 
And uh, I find that uh, they perceive me as a strong Christian, and uh, I'm uh, probably more acceptable to a Sunni than is a Shia uh, really? Muslim. You know, and that's, I suppose that works across all religions that way, but it's, uh, it's kind of human nature. But I don't, I don't perceive that uh, religion is, uh, is fading in any sense of the word. You are right. In the West, or sort of, let's say, Europe and the United States. Well, Europe has always been perceived as a bit of a spiritual wasteland, and that's because, you know, in the U.S., when our forefathers came over uh, to flee religious persecution, uh, they came from a country that had made the transition from absolute to constitutional monarchy, and uh, religion stayed intact. So they leaned heavily on uh, religion in this American experiment. But in the French Revolution, just a few years later, mm. the church was seen to be complicit with uh, the, the king and oppressing the people. So yeah. instead of a, a Edmund Burke approach of uh, modifying on the margins, this was a Jean-Jacques Rousseau approach of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They actively purged religion to make way for secular humanism. And that's why you see when, it, when, when they say uh, secular in Europe, uh, uh, most Muslims hear godless. When we say it over here, what we really mean is freedom to worship as you, as you Right, please, or, or you know? sort of, yeah. So we kind of talk past one another a bit. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the role of organized religion. Uh, so Pope Francis is in the, in the Gulf right now uh, for a sort of an unusual trip. There's a, could you talk about how, it, let's talk about either the Catholic Church or, or Islam through ver its various streams of Islam or Judaism or the Orthodox Church. Could you talk a little bit about how, how you work with them and how diplomats should be thinking about thinking about the contributions, the important contributions, I think that is underestimated here in Washington, vastly underestimated, that they can make, and not just in terms of providing charitable, you know, dealing with health or education issues or international development issues. You could talk a little bit about that. Sure. What, what, uh, what I found out when I first started out was, uh, you know, there's, a, and still, there's widespread use of the word tolerance, and you've heard me say it a lot up here too, but I never thought that tolerance was adequate. Tolerance means I'm willing to put up with you. So I thought what you really need is respect. And I have found in, uh, in some of the most dicey situations uh, in Pakistan, for example, meet, meeting with 57 uh, Taliban commanders and all, if you show respect for the values that they hold, uh, it goes a long, long way. I now feel that even that is inadequate. I think what we really need to do is a, the real heavy lifting, the hard task of empathy. You know, for me to understand not only what values you hold dear, but why you uh, view the situation differently than I do, and oftentimes that can trace its roots back to uh, uh, unresolved wounds of history. You know, there's just oh, so many things that act on the other person. But even the great military strategist Sun Tzu said, "Know thine enemy." Mm. Well, uh, so, it, so one of the strategic w empathy. W w yeah, one of the cr contradictions here is if you know your enemy, uh, have empathy. I mean, uh, McNamara, when asked uh, what was his greatest failing in, to, in the uh, uh, Vietnam War, and he says uh, failing to empathize with the en enemy, to understand where they were coming from, how determined they were. 
And uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a mistake that we all make, but uh, trying to put on that other person's hat, walk in their shoes, understand w the wounds that they're carrying around. And once you're equipped with that, you know, there's a, you can actually avoid conflict. You know, and so one of the difficulties when you go to war, you know, uh, one of the common things to do is to dehumanize the other side so it makes it easier to kill them. But if you learn about them to know thine enemy, maybe they don't have to be an enemy if you really do your homework. All right, I want to talk about two more things and I think there's a really, this is a very thoughtful audience and I want to hear from all of you. So. Uh, Afghanistan. So there's various. If you, if you, I'm assuming you know you've certainly been in Pakistan. Could you talk a little bit about if you, you given what we've just discussed? If you, if I said to you the country of Afghanistan, what what would be some of the things that come to mind given the conversation we've just had, and, and if you applied it to the country of Afghanistan? Uh, well, that's that's a tough one. Uh, I think that. Uh, um, you know, when, when I met with these Taliban commanders, they were all Afghans uh, for the most part, had come across the border for this meeting. And, um, and that exposure to them uh, created some networking that came in ha handy a bit later. The purpose of going up there was to explain to them what America wanted because they were lamenting the fact that they didn't know. And then to also try to facilitate a, uh, a confidence-building measure that could point toward peace, and we did do that. We we, we did it, and uh, one one of the points along the way, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of venting that went on. But at one point, some very tough-looking guy stood up and he pointed his finger at me. He says, "I can't talk to you unless you become a Muslim." So I thought for a second, and I thought, well, I don't. I said, I don't see a problem. Muslim means submission to God. We all submit to God, therefore we're all Muslims. So everybody laughed and we went on with it. Later on, I learned that the standard scenario is you convert or you die. And of course, oh. I was totally oblivious That's to that. That's pretty quick thought, thinking. I thought, uh, boy, the <laughs> Lord does look out for fools and incompetence. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but but uh, um, one thing that did happen, we, created that confidence building measure, but we couldn't get NATO to buy in on it. Uh, it takes two to tango in that business. But one thing that did come out from it is three months later, the ambassador uh, from Korea called and asked if there was anything we could do to help secure the release of the 21 Korean missionaries being held hostage by the Taliban. Mm. And largely as a result of the networking that had gone into that earlier meeting, we were able to actually play an instrumental role in getting them released. And, uh, uh, but uh, Afghanistan is not, uh, it's not easily solved. It's called the graveyard of empires for a reason. Uh, terribly independent people, you know. And, uh, I'll, uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, Taliban commanders there was a young man, probably in his uh, early 30s, and uh, he was from Kunar, which was the province right across the border, uh, just south of Nuristan, which was right across the border from us. And he was a leader of 350 Taliban fighters. And um, he got up and uh, shared his story. And this, this gentleman was uh, fluent in four languages. And you could just tell within three minutes that this guy had the charisma of a natural leader, mm. a real natural leader. And he got up and he talked about how he and his wife were out strolling one day and they were confronted by the U.S. military. 
and uh, they were made to stop and put their hands in the air and be frisked, and uh, there was uh, uh, copious use of uh, foul language in the process. And so uh, up until then, he'd been against the Taliban, he'd been against Al-Qaeda. He says, but uh, he says, I was made to feel humiliated in mm. front of my own wife. So he went over. And uh, uh, in going over, uh, everybody else there, they called him by a title that is very laudatory in their uh, tradition. And the title was engineer, which is one who gets the job done. Mm. You know, and I've wondered how many body bags have made their way back here because the engineer's getting the job done, all because of a gratuitous insult in a culture where honor is everything. So um, uh, one can understand what might cause that scenario to take place, you know, uh, because of the, the tragedies of war. Or but uh, tension ne of fear. nevertheless, you sometimes shoot yourself in the foot. You know, one thing I might mention too in response to your earlier question about uh, why this has had such staying power, I think that beyond the fact that uh, in anticipation of the end of the Cold War and identity-based conflicts coming, it might have had also to do with this three-part strategy that we had for putting the book together. First was if it came out under the auspices of uh, CSIS, it would probably resonate with policymakers uh, because CSIS had a reputation of being very tough policy wonks mm. who the way you uh, resolve conflict is defeat the other side and it was uh, I've seen more than once references in the media to reputation as a shadow government uh, secondly is to have a I hope so <laughs> <laughs> secondly to have it published by Oxford University Press yeah. gave you cachet with academia and then thirdly and this is very interesting but uh, we purposely understated the significance of the findings throughout the book uh, and that was because I was just absolutely convinced, given the uh, difficult crowd we were trying to impress, which is that realist school, uh, was if there was any point along the way where someone could fairly say that you had exaggerated, then you risk losing the, the, the whole message. And, and one of our reviewers uh, happened to see right through that, uh, Francis Fukuyama, end of history fame. Mm, yeah. uh, he wrote the review for Foreign Affairs, and here's what he said. He said, uh, this book brings a refreshing change. The editor's concluding comments try not to overstate the positive role of religion, but the book brings badly needed balance to the discussion of religion and international affairs. So, so he saw the, the scheme that was uh, being played out, but I think all of that contributed though. So this is, um, I mean, this is the challenges that you're, you've been dealing with have, have been going on for a while, and put it kind of, to put it gently. So are you optimistic that we're gonna get, get better at talking to each other? Are we gonna get better at being empathetic and the empathy that you discussed, are we getting better at that? Uh, yes and no. I say yes because uh, under the previous administration, uh, they actually established an office for religion and global affairs at the State Department. I might say they were a little bit late on the draw there because five years earlier, the French, the authors of secularism, had established their own uh, religion department in mm. the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but uh, that, 
that office was under uh, very effective leadership and was really having an impact and I think was uh, working very much toward the kind of thing you're talking about. Uh, unfortunately, uh, under this administration so far, it's been marginalized. It's not being paid attention to like it was before. So fits and starts, you know, I, I, I think that over the long haul, uh, we'll get there. It's just, uh, it's like trying to turn an aircraft carrier. It takes a while. Uh, but uh, that second book uh, that uh, Dan mentioned, uh, Religion, Terror, and Error, the subtitle is U.S. Foreign Policy and the Challenge of Spiritual Engagement. And it goes into great detail about what we ought to do uh, in this country to uh, integrate religious considerations into the daily conduct of uh, foreign policy. Okay, so you've all been very patient. Uh, we've got microphones. I, I want to bunch several questions together. There's a lot of my friends here, so I want to hear from all of you. So if you made the trip, I, I know they're very smart people in this room. So let's get some hands up, please. This gentleman, this gentleman, and my friend Catherine Bear. Okay, these three, okay? And we're going to bunch them together, World Bank Group style. So go ahead, name, rank, and serial number, please. Terry Murphy, former lieutenant, United States Navy, but also senior associate CSIS. I speak on the point of empathy, and I will get, use the moment to pay tribute to a lieutenant colonel of the United States Marine Corps Reserve, commander of a Marine Reserve Battalion today, and also a senior official foreign service officer of the United States Department of State. And when he was on active duty in, in uh, in uh, Iraq as a Marine, he negotiated with the religious leaders the removal of the dead from the battlefield. The United States did not touch the dead. They did not do anything like that. He negotiated. He had empathy. He's a member of our church, but I will say only that except I will also say that when he was on, on duty in the State Department, they didn't much like the fact that he was a, in also a reserve Marine. So okay. he, got, he got resistance from the State Department. All right, this, uh, this gentleman over here, everyone gets, keep it to 30 to 45 seconds and we'll, we'll share it around, get lots of folks here, go ahead. Hi, uh, Christopher Pumford, student from University of Michigan. Uh, I was just curious to hear your thoughts about what um, countries like Indonesia and Malaysia are doing with de-radicalization programs of former militants that they detain there. Okay, and my friend Catherine Baer. I didn't Hi, I'm Catherine Baer from the IMF, and this is a delightful chat and uh, ideas that you're talking about today, so thank you. Two very quick observations. One is very interesting, I'm coming more from the uh, perspective of economics, to see that in the field of economics things look like they're changing, you know, the rational man and sort of rational economics and sort of the consumer, the consumer is, you know, everything that drives the economic model and our economic assistance yes. to a more ethical uh, framework. And um, Paul Collier, I don't, also from Oxford University, just wrote a book called The Future of Capitalism. Yeah. That reminds me a little bit of what you're talking about, is sort of where the values that drive people's, you know, that motivate people uh, in, in, the, in the area of economics as well as politics. So I very much like to 
you know, that to, to highlight that there's, I think there's an overlap between what you're talking about and very new developments in the, in the field of economics. My second quick observation to do with technology, uh, someone said, you know, why aren't we hearing more about these stories and about positive things and potential ways of solving conflict in the world? And I think um, you mentioned CNN. I think there is uh, a challenge for those working in this area to get the word out and this approach uh, to, to globalize it through, through media, through uh, YouTube, through social media. And you know, we always just see like the garbage. When we, when we look on social media, we just see garbage. We don't see any of the good stuff, uh, like the things you're talking about. So I think there's a big job to be done there to, to um, uh, spread these messages around. And as you very interestingly pointed out, educate young people. So where, educate, where are young people looking around the world? They're looking on social media platforms. They're looking at YouTube uh, to get their values, their ideas. So just throwing that out there. Okay, so when, when there was a, so the gentleman talked about Malaysia and Indonesia de-radicalization programs. And so mm -hmm. I think Catherine's, I think, thank you, Catherine, for those points. I think, I think there is a, there's been a shift in, in the field of economics beyond sort of, not everyone is operating on a full profit maximizing basis or that, uh, that we're all sort of atoms. There's sort of an, there was sort of an atomistic mindset to some of, to some of the economics field. I think you're getting it. And so the behavioral economics, for example, is, is part of that. So, so Doug, do you want to respond to any of those, any of the comments that were put out there? Well, sure. And I think that the, there are any number of examples, as you mentioned, about uh, showing empathy, uh, particularly uh, in the ranks of the military. They're out where the rubber meets the road, and many of them understand that. Uh, you know, an insult here or there is going to probably backfire on them. And uh, so they go to, many of them go to great lengths. And uh, one of the things that we've been championing for a long time is the, uh, an expanded role for military chaplains. And mm. e even the French, when they were in Algeria and uh, in a tight situation militarily, they would send their military chaplains out to negotiate with the Muslim insurgents. You know, understanding, you know, that there has to be, you know, if you can come together around some of those religious values, uh, you've got a lot more opportunity to do well or better than what you're doing otherwise. On the de-radicalization programs, um, uh, I don't uh, have as much familiarity with uh, those two countries, uh, although I do know that uh, uh, Malaysia was a, a leader of, uh, in, in some respects. My impression is that, uh, um, for example, I, I think Yemen was the first one that started out. And uh, after a while, um, you find that the uh, culprits uh, catch on and, and game the system. Uh, many of them do, you know, pretend to be reformed and then get out and do whatever they do. Uh, but uh, we've had some great examples, tremendous examples. For example, there was a, a Marine commander, uh, a uh, general by the name of Douglas Stone, who was in charge of the two largest uh, uh, prison camps in Iraq. And, and there had been lots of trouble there, lots of killing yeah. within the camps and mm. all. And he was very far-sighted about it. He got it to the point where he sort of sequestered the, uh, the real extremists who were beyond hope, but uh, the, the other 95% he put in, he brought in 
uh, a de-radicalization effort, if you will, with uh, uh, the mainstream Muslim uh, imams to come in and explain the religion in, in the right way. And uh, they just did a lot of things to the point where a lot of those prisoners didn't want to leave. And in fact, their families would come and visit them. And they, some of them wanted their families to come in and be part of it, you know. So, so there are ways to win hearts and minds if you, if you, if you put your mind to it. And, and the uh, success of different de-radicalization programs varies with, uh, uh, with the situations and uh, often the culture as well. Could you talk about this, Doug, about economics, this issue of um, how, how, if I said to you, economics and in this conversation we've been having, what, what's your reaction to that? Do you have a, does that come across your radar screen in, in, in your work? Well, it, it's, um, it's, it's certainly a part of why a lot of people feel uh, disenfranchised. You know, if they're not participating in the uh, there's so many places, I mean, in Balochistan and Pakistan, for example, which is very rich in minerals and mm. all, and the people don't share in the spoils from those mining operations. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of that to happen before you get very discontented. And, uh, you know, one of the other things, too, uh, we find this doesn't have to do with economics so much, but uh, uh, in taking a very hard look at religious freedom, unless you give full reign to... Uh, uh, religious expression, uh, you're just begging for trouble in terms of hostilities that build up and uh, finally erupt uh, in some way or fashion. We haven't been uh, uh, overly involved in the economic part of it, some, but what you were, the analogies you were striking are absolutely right. Uh, and um, I would say that we've been more on the cultural side, if you will. Uh, just, let me just, just, to just reflect a little bit more on this. I think if you look at polling in any number of different countries, as many as, I think, 75 countries, I saw this World Economic Forum, it's something like the number one, number two, or number three issue in over, in almost over several dozen countries is corruption. So the issue of corruption, some of it has to do with not sharing in the spoils of wealth, some of it's about massive stealing, some of it's about feeling like you're not getting a fair shake or you're, the system isn't working. And I think one of the things I've thought that the United States, that we are an imperfect vessel for this. We've always been an imperfect vessel for this. But when we've led, so for instance, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and sort of pushing on international corruption issues has helped change societies over time. Now, I'd like us to return to getting at the forefront of the anti-corruption parade, if you will, but it seems to me, if I was making common cause with different stakeholders in the society on anti-corruption, one of the first phone calls I'd make is the various organized religions to talk about this, because I would think most organized religions, or probably all of them, are going to say, we all want to be treated fairly. Uh, pro stealing's probably not, you know, probably not a good thing. And pro I, I, don't know, I don't know a single organized religion that says stealing's a good idea. I don't know, you know, I don't know a single organized relation that says, you know, lying and cheating is, is something that should be something people should do. And I also think most religions or all religions probably say people ought to get a fair shake in life. So it seems to me that one of the things is we want to, I'd like us to see us do more in the anti-corruption sphere. So let me just, so let me get your reaction to the issue of anti-corruption and 
the issue of, re of, re of religion. Is that, is that something that's come across your radar screen? Uh, it has, and I think that uh, one thing you find is that because of corruption, oftentimes uh, the only ones who have moral authority in a country mm. are the religious leaders. True. You know, and one of the case studies in the book uh, talks about the role of cardinal sin in the Philippines. when. Uh, this is the this is the religious leader mm -hmm. Jaime Cardinal Sin. Yes. Right. Yes. And uh, um, the uh, the fact that that's so uh, means that oftentimes uh, they're the ones that end up with the responsibility. And then in terms of corruption, one of uh, one of the larger issues I think that doesn't get addressed very often is uh, in Africa, you know, when the colonial powers left, they didn't leave any, any uh, systems for succession. And so uh, oftentimes the leaders of African countries, not just Africa, but elsewhere too, but especially there, uh, when they get into the job, their first preoccupation is extending themselves in perpetuity and uh, all of the uh, resources that flow to their Swiss bank accounts and all uh, where the people are living absolutely poorly. And I'm amazed at how uh, the, the longevity and staying power that some of these regimes have uh, in light of the obvious corruption. Let, let me get a couple more comments. Okay, my friend Michael Levitt, and this gentleman here, and this gentleman here. Okay, <coughs> and this gentleman here. Um, I'm Michael Levitt, and until this afternoon, I was a friend of Dan's. Um, wait, sat first. As somebody who's religious but not Christian, I've heard this overwhelmingly as a Christian conversation. Christianity has grown in the United States, but largely one part of Christianity that doesn't believe in goodness and mercy in foreign policy, at least as I've seen it. Second, don't conflate ethics and morality with religion. Many ethical religious people in this world, um, ethical and moral people who aren't religious, and to conflate the two, I've lived in a number of countries where the church is so involved with the corruption in the state, it's silly to ignore it. It doesn't have to be, um, but it is. I think the difference in the two titles Religion and spirituality is not insignificant. I think it's great having the title of spirituality. If we talk about religion, I'll give you more examples of people who are killing each other over religion than religion is bringing people together right now. Hasn't always been, doesn't have to be, but it is. Religion plays a huge role in foreign policy, usually with people killing each other. I'd like to see more morality and ethics more spirituality, and perhaps less em uh, emphasis on some of the religions who use religious fervor to kill people. Thank you. That, Are we answer. still friends? Of course we're still friends. What'd you say? I'm glad you said that. I wanted you, I expected, you know, and well, I, it was important someone put that out there. Okay, sir. I'm Peter Mandeville, currently at the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University. Um, Doug, thank you for mentioning the work of the Office of Religion and Global Affairs from the previous administration. As you know, I had the honor to work in that uh, office and to be part of this experiment of trying to install more systematically uh, within American diplomacy the capacity to engage with religious actors. I wanted to reflect very briefly on what I take to be that office's greatest failing, and in that sense I'm reflecting on my own failing and to get your advice moving forward. 
To me, the toughest lift we had to deal with in many regards was explaining to our colleagues within the State Department what the office was actually about and what it was trying to do. Not so much convincing them that religion was relevant. You're absolutely right. People understood that religion was relevant. You just couldn't ignore that, that fact. But when they looked at us and said, religion and global affairs, what do you mean? Do you mean like Islam and security? No, we don't mean Islam and security. It's not a euphemistic title. We were working on climate change and corruption, yeah. actually long before we were working on violent extremism or terrorism. They said, well, do you mean, are you promoting religion? No, we're certainly not doing that. You know, Aside from the legal concerns associated with a government entity promoting religion, our office, while it had many deeply believing people, some of the most fervent atheists I ever met also worked in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, so we're not promoting religion. Um, it was difficult to explain to people, to our fellow diplomats, what we wanted them to do when recognizing the relevance of religion. Is it just talking to religious actors? I think part of the challenge was in differentiating ourselves from the other office at the State Department that had religion in its title, the Office of International Religious Freedom. And it was clear what that was about. That was a cause. There were normative commitments there. Religious freedom was a value that the United States was going to promote around the world. And whether you agreed with that agenda or not, you knew what it was. But explaining to people what the Office of Religion and Global Affairs was about and what we wanted them to do was very difficult. So what I wanted to ask you is, if we get a second run at this, if a future administration decides to return to investing in that kind of function and that office in American diplomacy, based on your experience, based on what you observed of what we we did, what advice would you give the next leadership of that office in terms of how to do what it does more effectively? Okay. This gentleman here. All right, thank you. Uh, I was in the Foreign Service for 15 years, and then I switched hierarchies. You, sw you switched careers. <laughs> <laughs> well, different ways of looking at it, sure. But I, uh, I've tried to combine and uh, I teach, uh, have taught for quite a few years now, a course on religion and international diplomacy and, and uh, international affairs. And I've um, been, uh, obviously, have fallen back very often on, on your book and the, and the one on terrorism. But also I've been fascinated by a paradigm that uh, I think he was at Santa Clara, a uh, political scientist, Eric Hansen, has put together on the influence of religion on economic, military, political, and uh, communication uh, elements. But he brings in, uh, as well as the traditional mainstay, let's say, religions, two others, because he focuses on the role of the other and he introduces, uh, brings in Confucianism on the one hand and Maoism on the other, and uh, how, that, how that could kind of uh, play an important role in the other's views, the role of the other, and in, uh, influencing you know, various uh, results in, in these uh, three areas, economic, military, uh, four areas, economic, political, military, and communication, recognizing particularly the increased role of technology. Any thoughts? And let, and let me get this gentleman here. I think we're going to have to end it. Sadly, we need to end it after this gentleman here, like my friend with the, no, this gentleman here with the, with the scarf. 
my problem my english is very weak but I, by my best try you will understand i talking about pakistan in pakistan role of dr douglas johnston in pakistan was uh, situation is very critical and dangerous i give a example in peshawar a big religious madrasa in this madrasa was one teacher he named jan he talking in classroom about de-radicalization one student next day he killed the teacher in this situation and in this environment dr douglas start in pakistan peace through education i give you example how much effective role of the dr douglas danced in this time we have more than 20000 people data these 20000 people train muslim christian federation international pf with collaboration icrd one example i give you <coughs> what is the result of this struggle in gujranwala very big city in pakistan and he is mostly religious people very fundamental was in this in this city one workshop during the workshop one person fight with us was as he also in this workshop he fighting with us but we manage he sit the chair but what is the result after one week was training uh, for female sister is the main person he fight with us you are agent of west you are agent of america his sister was participant in my female workshop after workshop then she back to the home he discuss with brother mama papa other sisters what is the result <coughs> the result is this person uh, uh, he he working with us as a peacemaker he is the result of dr douglas johnston icrd and muslim christian federation international some question in mind of people about role of icrd i am being a pakistani and be a uh, over collaboration board this matter i very very hopefully inshallah we control warmongers thank you thank you very much okay so doug why don't you respond i think these are each important comments that have been made here could you i think you get extra points if you respond in sort of 45 seconds to each one of them but no not more than that just keep it short but respond to each of them okay well the the last uh, uh questioner is uh, abdul qadir kamush 
uh, from Pakistan, who has been one of our indigenous partners there, who has led us into some of the more dangerous settings that we've had to be able to reach the people who need it the most. And his son, Amir, and uh, we're supposed to meet on Thursday, so let me answer your question then, if I may. Uh, the gentleman over here. Uh, Michael Levitt's question. Michael Levitt's, yeah. Uh, your point's well taken. Uh, the, uh, uh, it's long been known and written about the uh, contributions that religion can make to conflict. Uh, I just want to cite one example for where we kind of saw that turn around. In Afghanistan, in the, in the wake of our effort with the uh, release, getting the hostages released, the uh, Minister of Religious Affairs asked us to uh, convene uh, conferences around the country bringing together uh, religious leaders and uh, political leaders to uh, see how they could begin to cooperate on development assistance. Well, the strategic piece of that was that the religious leaders were the lifeblood of the Taliban, and the Taliban was actively sabotaging all development assistance. When we got them in, we did, we did three of these before we ran out of funding and we couldn't do any more. We wanted to do five and then we wanted to have a, 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 big, a larger one inviting co uh, other countries to be represented. But one of the things we found, which was very interesting, is that the religious leaders got very engaged. Now, they had been on the wrong side of the, uh, of the fence on this thing. But when, and what the problem was, is when they were paid attention to under the Taliban regime, uh, you know, that meant a lot to them. Then when, uh, when under Karzai, uh, they were marginalized. And so when you're in a marginalized state, it's uh, easy to adopt, easier to adopt a negative agendas. And we were just amazed at how positive these folks, once you got them engaged and they felt they were really able to contribute. It's just kind of the human condition. But, but, but uh, Doug, let me just jump in on, on that. Let me, I think what I heard Michael say was, um, there's been all, you know, organized religion doesn't have a great, necessarily a great track record and maybe can be perhaps blamed for some conflicts or, you know, has directly perhaps, you know, perhaps, or has a, you know, has, you know, has sort of a mixed bag record on this. So how, when, when so, you know, so what do we do about the fact that organized religion oftentimes has had a, had a, had a mixed record, not just on peacemaking, but on peace breaking? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, uh, your comment's well taken, and one of the things uh, I would just share with you, uh, I've been affiliated for quite some time with the National Prayer Breakfast here in Washington, and it cuts across all religious divides, and, uh, you know, their, their uh, focal point is, is the, the spirit of Jesus, basically, mm. and uh, it's amazing. Uh, I, I've been involved with everything from Shinto to y you name it. Uh, they get very excited about the, you know, every every one of the religions uh, holds this figure in in high on high in some capacity, and we've been able to work across those bridges and divides. But uh, religion, unfortunately, uh, it also reflects the 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 human condition, and you find that. Uh, uh, churches that are supposed to, you know, they worship uh, the figure of Jesus, who was one of the most inclusive people you ever come across. He talked to all the wrong people, 
trying to inspire them to rise above themselves, you know, and yet these churches become very exclusivist, you know, there's some synods of the or, Lutheran or, church, for example, you. that won't let another synod from the same church uh, partake of Holy Communion, you know, and it makes no sense. So, or the, or the fisticuffs fisty in Jerusalem between two different groups man, yeah. managing the church in Jerusalem. Absolutely, the tension is uh, you could cut it with a knife in, in Jerusalem, and and so the organized religion has a lot of failings, uh, just as does man. But but there are values. Uh, uh, you know, every one of these major religions has some version of the golden rule. And and if you can persuade people to sort of come together around those values, uh, if we got 30 seconds, I'll, I'll share with you. I took two board members with me to uh, visit some madrasas in Pakistan that had clear ties to the, the uh, uh, terrorism. And the first one uh, walk in and the room is full of rage. Rage because uh, at that point in time, uh, Hezbollah and uh, uh, Israel were locked in combat in Lebanon. And anything Israel does, the United States gets credit for. So there's a lot of hostility in the room. and. Um, I told them, I, I tried to work past that by citing the fact that uh, they needed to remember when the United States had intervened on behalf of Muslims of Bosnia, Kosovo, Somalia, Kuwait. Kuwait. Uh, and, and I said, and you're, you fairly criticized the United States for having a double standard in the Middle East because of a strategic relationship with Israel, but then you turn a blind, they, these Arab leaders turn a blind ear to, or a deaf ear, uh, to uh, Palestinian pleas for humanitarian assistance. So everybody has double standards, driven by perceived national self-interest. So we got past that a little bit, and then I said, you know, um, I and my two colleagues uh, come to you today uh, to see if we can't come together around the religious values we share in common. Then I quoted uh, three passages from the Quran that I had committed to memory for this, and a, a paraphrase of which, a consolidated paraphrase, would go, oh mankind, God could have made you one had he willed, but he didn't. He made you into new nations and tribes, separate nations and tribes that you may cooperate with one another, compete with one another in good works. Mm. And uh, I said, we're here to open the competition in good works. And when, when I recited those, uh, things, passages from the Quran, our project director said you could hear a, a, a gasp, you know, a sigh of relief in the audience. The, the rage disappeared <clears throat> because of the respect shown for their values. And so we're meeting them on the basis of their values. You know, and I, I, I further said, I said, you know, the three of us happen to be followers of Jesus. I said, you know, we we know you can't be a good Muslim unless you believe some really wonderful things about Jesus. So I said, if, let's assume if he were here today, how would he want us to act toward one another? And as that played out over the course of an hour, at the end of the, it segued into a social uh, thing, but uh, that rage was gone. And it, there was a, not only acceptance, but a kind of mm -hmm. a spirit of fellowship that developed. So, so if you can engage around values, I think that uh, that takes you a large part of the way. All right, so let's say you had a magic wand and you had the State Department that said, we need to do more of this, and we needed to kind of put the, the office that this gentleman used to work at on triple steroids. What, what would you do? <laughs> No, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good question. Again, I, I come back to values. I think that uh, 
that uh, a, a, lot, a lot of bridge building can be effectively uh, handled if, if uh, one goes out of one's way to try to understand what those values are on the other side. And on both sides, you've got a bridge has is mounted on <laughs> two platforms, you know. Uh, and, and it's a question I would like to think more deeply about. Uh, I felt like uh, religion and global affairs probably strayed a, a bit from some of the more uh, the key things, but I know what your charter was, and it was a. Uh, uh, Doug, I think you, had, you, you guys, ICRD needs to put out an open memo to the Secretary of State on what they should do. So my view is, I think if there's a second term, or if there's a new administration, I think sooner. I'd like to believe that sooner or later. I've always been to believe what Winston Churchill said that sooner or later the Americans will do the right thing after they try everything else. So it seems to me that that would be a homework assignment for the ICRD is to, is to put, a, put an open memo, three, three or four page memo together on, uh, on what, what you ought to do because I think that'd be a good thing to do. Well, you know, there, there, uh, this, this book I mentioned, uh, Religion, Terror, and Error, uh, goes into great depth on what the United yeah. States should do. One of the things that we could do right away that would be very, very helpful, and I'm not quite sure why it never happens, but uh, there are political ambiguities surrounding our separation of church and state that intimidate political and military leaders, our leaders, yeah, from addressing yeah. the religious dimensions of the threats they're dealing with. So they're, you know, they're operating with one hand tied behind their back. And all you would need is the president to assign his Justice Department the task of developing a policy paper that would uh, make the case for religious engagement as a component of U.S. foreign policy, and then get the, uh, the agreement of the top folks on the Hill from both parties, and, and you would unleash a lot of creative energies where, that are being stifled right now. All right, we need to, we need to end it here. I'm, I'm hoping, do we get to the, the fathers? Do, we, do you want to respond to the father? Uh, I, you need you to just had just me. had a comment more than anything else. Or Buddhism in Myanmar, Buddhism in Myanmar, for example, right? I'd have to look at that very closely. We have dealt with, uh, uh, and, and in a very significant way, with uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, is, is Islam, and uh, Christianity, of course, have not dealt with uh, the two that you mm. mentioned. Uh, but uh, 
there's usually, if you look hard enough, there's usually always uh, some points uh, around which one can come together. Um, so I, uh, uh, I think I'd need to do some homework before I could give you a good answer on that. All right, let's end it here. Please join me in thanking Doug Johnston. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, Dennis. Okay, good. Good. Mm -hmm.